0: Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight, and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.
1: Good morning and welcome to today's webinar. My name is Kevin. I'm the Business Advice Manager at the REC. Providing RPO and MSP and Statement of Work services has enormous potential it could be another avenue for you to increase your market share and attract new clientele. However, you may think it is not worth the time and effort to compete in this space against the biggest players in the market. This is a common misconception. Smaller businesses are often well-placed to reap the rewards from offering these services if they can spot the opportunities, price attractively and be proactive with clients. Having this capability also protects your business from losing important clients to bigger players. I'm joined today by our speaker, Alison Humphreys, who is a recruitment lifer of over 35 years and an honorary fellow of the REC awarded for her services to the industry. She's been a chief examiner for the REC for more than 20 years, as well as a popular mentor for more than 10 Alison will explain what she has achieved in the important field of RPO, MSP and statement of works recruiting in a moment. But importantly, she's been a director of several PLCs and now works with directors and owners of SME businesses and has successfully helped them to win this kind of transformational business. So without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to Alison.
2: Thank you, Kevin, and thank you for having me. And thank you to all the members of our audience who've joined us today. And I was just yesterday with a client of mine, the owners of a recruitment business, who had literally just lost one of their most important clients. And that was a client that they'd made multiple placements with for more than a year, and something that they felt they could rely on. And they... I wanted to secure that business, but frankly, they were making good percentage margins on it and they didn't want to rock the boat. And what happened in that particular instance was that a brand new HRD came in. There was a bit of new broom syndrome and a review of the recruitment and the whole thing moved over to an RPO opera. So they lost it. And it's exactly that sort of scenario that I w- I'm hoping we can support Smaller businesses in recruitment so that they've got this in their toolbox and they can be proactive about seeking out opportunities. So this is an introduction to the whole issue of recruitment process outsourcing, managed service provision, and statement of works recruitment. And we will touch later on exactly what the difference is between those. But the important thing they share is that these are long term contracted or annuity businesses. In other words, something that, for example, a trade buyer who might be looking to acquire your firm or invest in it can see where your future income is coming from. And that is a very attractive thing. It goes without saying that if you work in recruitment, knowing where your money is coming from is a very interesting proposition. So we're going to cover three things. Number one, why you should be considering doing it. Number two, how to get started. And number three, how uh, we can support you through the REC. So moving on. Traditionally, RPO and Statement of Works Guild were entirely the domain of listed and very large recruitment businesses. Why? Because they had to deal with the cash flow issues that very often the longer sales cycle presents. So if you can imagine, in a small recruitment business, you're always looking for what's coming in this month. And in a very large business with substantial cash reserves, they can say, well, you know what, we're going to invest in winning this bigger, catching this bigger fish, if you will. It may be six months or more before the deal's signed. We may have to invest quite a lot of management time up front in discovery and proposal making, so forth, and therefore it it did tend to be business that was only chased by very large and established players, and particularly those that already had a national and international presence. The need for substantial cash reserves has, has also been a big issue in the past because of involving the payment of temporary staff, and so quite often it was on the shopping list of a potential client for these services that they needed someone who could fund their own temporary services. So as a result, some of those biggest players did have the money to develop in-house technology uh, or to own the intellectual property for a special platform that they could use to, if you will, insert into their clients. So their clients had a dashboard about recruitment and the management information they wanted has also tended to be very heavily represented by tech recruiters in this field, although not exclusively. But there's no doubt about it that it has in the past been a very long sales process. So in my own experience, yes, they were very substantial deals and there was a lot of due diligence around them, but those pro sales processes have taken from three months at the shortest to about two years. Now, that's not the case now, which is why I think the... Timing is um, actually really good to look at this. So we are in a situation where small and medium recruiters are probably beginning to be valued more than they have ever been because recruitment and candidate shortages in particular in skilled areas has become a really visible and demonstrable issue. Not just something that recruiters say, but actually, you know, registrable in in national statistics. So clients are recognising that those candidate shortages are real. But we're also have this like happy, perfect storm, if you will, of many, many businesses scaling up or pivoting their businesses dramatically at the moment. So again, I don't need to give you the stats on this. It's all well borne out. Obviously, national statistics will show you. But I think most of us have already seen the amount of, for example, investment capital that's available to clients who want to grow particular models. And that kind of scale up means that you're, you need people to do it. Often people with new sets of skills that you haven't got in-house. It can't be a gradual process. And in order not to disappoint their stakeholders or even shareholders, businesses have to implement those changes really, really quickly. I put it to you that there is a third element to it as well that clients are beginning to recognize that recruitment isn't easy that it's not just a matter of finding a cv and whacking it over via email in fact if you look at the bewildering amount of recruitment technology and all the channels to market that many recruiters that I work with now use. I think most of our clients would blanch if they saw what we have to master to really look at the whole market rather than who's just active on it. So as long as you have prudent cash management measures, and there are, of course, excellent providers of invoice discounting and finance for the smaller businesses now, and you've got a clear understanding of why the client's need for staff is central to delivering a business objective then there is a market right now for more agile RPO statement of works and people want to see a product or service if you will that they can imagine literally turning a key and seeing rolled out just a little bit of, uh, very briefly, credentials of, of mine in this area. So I was in the fortunate position of establishing businesses to do just this for three listed recruitment businesses. Um, I did that from scratch. So moved them from their basis of executive search, recruitment advertising, and ordinary traditional recruitment into massive RPO and statement of works contracts. So it was, it was a very different sell. And yes, working with those listed companies, you can see the size of some of the contracts that I personally negotiated and then had to deliver, important, <laughs> 120 million pounds per annum was the, the probably the most valuable. But in case you're thinking, oh, okay, this is only for huge companies, listed companies and, and so forth. I then, much later in my career, became managing director of liquid personnel. That was a business plating contracts qualified social workers. And I was able there, it's a much smaller business, to create a statement of works business that generated, you have it, five million pounds in revenues in its first four years. And that was while maintaining my traditional business. And two things aligned there. One was I had the expertise to, to know how to do it, how to pitch for it, and how to price it. Number two was that an opportunity arose for me there. It was a change in legislation, which meant that local authorities suddenly had had a backlog of assessments that they had to carry out and they needed to clear that backlog very rapidly. So um, knowing how to do it um, is, in my view, really important to, to get in place so that you can actually take advantage of an opportunity when one arises. And I'm now MD of recruitment leadership. Uh, So I advise recruitment business owners. And this has become quite an important element of my advice for businesses that really want to maximise their profitability, their capital value, and indeed their current run rate and grow their market share. So it's a very fast growing market. This is a slide taken from the Everest Research Group, who are probably the leading data authority in the area of RPO. What's interesting is that the global RPO markets, particularly in the English-speaking world, have grown very strongly at about 25% per year. Now, that's even faster than the traditional recruitment market. In the US, the take-up has already been bigger, um, although arguably the amount of their recruitment process that they're outsourcing, if you can regard it as a sort of chain of events or sequences. Arguably less, but according to staffing industry analysts, the growth rate is faster in Europe now. They say that 75% of large businesses either have done this already or are exploring it, and that trend tends to drop down. So why is there a need for this now? Well, I've already mentioned the important impact that this kind of annuity contracted income can have on building the capital value of your business. And that will be very important to you if you are a business owner. However, if you are delivering recruitment services and operational in those, there's a real need that your clients have that comes from a couple of the factors I've just mentioned. So, just going round our circle there. Compliance and government, well, you we only have to look at the recent changes in IR35 legislation to know that clients have begun to get a bit scared of this and realise that actually compliance and governance, particularly with Brexit as well, is a big part of what recruiters have to deal with and can advise on. And very often they want to distance themselves from that responsibility. Um, The skill shortage is across all sorts of areas I've already mentioned. Nevertheless, this remains a highly competitive industry and we continue to experience margin pressure. Going down the left there, the proliferation of brand new rec tech means that we need to master an entire, I like to think of it as a sort of mixing board of technologies who genuinely find the best talent in the market. And importantly, possibly accelerated by COVID, it's become truly a global recruitment market. So I work with several businesses who are placing overseas contractors, for example, in overseas markets from a UK business. Most of us will have placed some remote worker in the recent past. I think unintended or certainly unpredictable consequences of the disturbance there's been is that all of these factors have combined to create some changes in client and candidate behaviour. Candidates in particular, I think I'll get some nods of recognition when I say that candidates are increasingly Difficult to get commitment from, difficult to engage. I read a statistic published by the Chartered Institute of Personal and Development who said that 93% of HR managers had been ghosted by someone that had already accepted a job, which is a staggering statistic. And all of those things bring to the fore a recruiter's ability to engage and manage like, the whole placement process through to a successful conclusion. Now... If you are going to have a conversation with your client or clients about alternatives to spot services or contingent recruitment, then you need to have a, a clear understanding of what their priorities. is. I've put up some, some four main areas here that I think are worth opening a conversation at the most senior level you can reach with your client. So the decisions to switch to either you know, bringing your recruitment team in-house or switching to an RPO or a statement of works kind of approach aren't typically made by hiring managers or heads of recruitment or talent attraction. They are made by HRDs and even CEOs. So very clear that you would get better results if you start as high as you possibly can, although you will need to involve a lot of stakeholders in that discussion. But these are the kind of areas that open up a discussion I found with clients. Their business strategy, the need to be more agile, to respond to changing pressures, political, economic, commercial, um, for example, to pivot their business onto an online model, to start delivering into new geographic markets, or to change their business because, for example, of environmental pressure. Technical challenges often result from that. And very often, digitalization is an obvious example, it means that they have to rapidly bring on board a whole team of people with skills they did not have before and are often not in a position to assess as well. So that's the conversation that leads to a different approach. Then there's the whole um, economic and political landscape and the way that candidates can move within areas of governance and the very much raise candidate expectations of what their journey will be. So we know that candidates equate the efficiency and thoroughness and acceptability of the recruitment process with what being employed will be like. And a poor process, just, you know, emails not going answered, long delays, interviews repeated, a poor process often results in a no-show at the end of it. Okay, now at the traditional use of staffing and hiring models and I'm talking here about the simple payment on results method it's arisen for good reasons it arose because originally recruitment agencies were typically used to fill unforeseen vacancies or needs you know sudden sickness um, mat leave or just something that wasn't in a business plan and very often they were you know literally replicating the missing person so, you know, got a bare outlines of a, of a job description to hire from. Speed of hire there before became paramount. It was a race to get the first CV there. And obviously priced for distress purchase. So don't kid yourself that your clients haven't realized that when they pay your fee for a successful placement, they are actually paying for all the work you've done on unsuccessful placements for other people. They are well aware of this. They understand how that business model works. And so you need to make sure that they understand that this environment has shifted. So what do we see now? We see clients who have flexible staffing built in to their models and budgets and business processes. You only need to think about, say, um, how Amazon would staff up at Christmas to recognize that. They have to scale up rapidly for the kind of new ventures that I've already touched on. And making a success of those new ventures is probably the only differentiator they have for a while, and it's entirely down to the skills of the people that they hire. And those people are often the most expensive thing that they they put into the input they like. But what we have realized, and we need to communicate to clients, is that engagement of candidates and a proper process is critical. This is no longer just about accessing CVs. Indeed, I would say that it's probably never been easier to find a CV or a resume Than it is now. So we can find them in all sorts of formats, but let's face it, LinkedIn is there and it's changed things forever. So the the balance of power and the whole market environment we're selling in has shifted, and that needs explanation to clients to open up the discussion. So, more and more, particularly if you're dealing at the CEO level, recruitment is a strategic process. And you need to be able to have a strategic conversation. Now, this is a controversial statement. There are no cash cows in recruitment anymore. Let me explain what I mean. When I started in recruitment, when the earth was cooling, 1985, actually, there was a philosophy and we called it land and expand. And I'm sure many of the people on the webinar will recognize that. Land and Expand is the idea that you provide an excellent service on one spot piece of recruitment, The client, you merely ask the client to refer you to other contacts in the business or to come back to you next time they're looking, and they just keep giving you their assignments and you carry on charging them your 20% of salary or whatever is normal in your business. So the idea was do a good job on high margins and repeat, Yeah. So, what we now see is more and more new broom syndrome, important people coming in, making a splash, reviewing recruitment, its costs, its efficiencies, performance, quality of hire. As I said earlier, don't be tempted to fall for the don't rock the boat philosophy, because if you don't introduce this conversation, your cash cow could literally disappear. So, letting clients know that you have this capability is absolutely critical, for example, when in your strategic conversation, when those things come to the surface, and that means that you need to have that conversation early. If you wait until a client has started a tender process, then they may already have defined what's on their shopping list, who their preferred suppliers might be, and those things might already exclude you. So, what are the primary drivers for reviewing staffing and hiring provision? Well any of these really tend to start it certainly if you look at some very large employers public sector as well visibility and control was a key driver for engaging with recruitment process outsourcers and market service providers because very often they had no central technology no data on their recruitment performance no applicant tracking system and actually no idea how much they spent on recruitment or how what good value they got for their money So the first generation of RPO and MSP, a large part of the sales process was very often the recruiter coming in and and actually measuring all of that and finding some basis on which to quote for providing a service. Smaller companies, of course, often just don't have an infrastructure. So if they've suddenly received a a massive injection of funding, they simply don't have a recruitment team to deal with it. Uh, And so they're looking to bolt it on once those things have been established very often they're looking for spend reduction or perhaps better put better value for money on their recruitment spend and then often a phase that follows that is improving the quality of hire and quality of hire remember for most clients means how long do they last how well do people perform in the job it doesn't just mean the service of recruitment uh, of getting someone to start so there's also there's a general trend towards subscription models. You can no doubt bring to mind consumer products like my opticians, for example, have me sign up for a monthly direct debit rather than just paying when I come in for a new pair of glasses or an eye check. Supermarkets have us signing up to pay for our delivery service on a subscription model as well. And that's because it's good business sense. So question mark, do you have recruiters who are capable of having genuinely strategic conversations because if I'm really honest what that looks like to a lot of the recruiters I meet is have you got any jobs or if they're really strategic it's have you got any senior jobs that's not what I mean I mean to have a conversation about what their business objectives are what changes they're seeing in the market, how they're responding to them in terms of their product, their client base, their geographies. And I think it's worth repeating this, that your clients all have their own KPIs. And it is vanishingly rare that headcount is one of them. Vanishingly rare. If they could achieve the profitability their business is looking for, the market penetration, without hiring more staff, they would do it in a flash. So focusing your conversation on jobs is not a strategic conversation. Focusing on the people needs that drop out of business strategy is what I mean. So uh, a quick summary on the right, make sure you understand the key influences and priorities of the organization, because if you can hang your proposal on that, on achieving a central business objective, then the driver, Achieve it, and to achieve it through different means, is far far better and stronger than if you just talk about jobs, which pushes your client back into that stress purchase kind of thinking. Now, next, if you're going to have some credibility in opening these conversations, I really think it's important to be clear about what your offer is. Are you offering RPO, MSP, statement of work? Now. People throw these terms around often as if they were interchangeable. So very quickly, recruitment process outsourcing is commonly used to mean a process where an external company manages all of the external permanent hires as far as the point of start date and onboarding very often. How much of that process they do from attraction all the way through to induction training is a matter for negotiation and capability. MSP, same thing, but for your temporary uh, or contract workforce and often involves managing second tier suppliers. Statement of Works, fundamentally different. In Statement of Works, you are contracting to supply services, not labour. So you may be contracting, for example, to staff up a business unit. You may be contracting to supply, as I did, social services directly and you're responsible for the manning of that but recruitment itself can be the work that you're recruiting for I'll come back to that in a moment are you going to be a master vendor or a neutral vendor most of us would like to be a master vendor and to own most of that delivery clients who are looking for neutral vendor will put a lot more emphasis on your technology platform so that's important Are you providing an APS as part of your system and management information? Will you be embedding on-site staff? Don't just assume that these people will understand these things are or aren't in your offer. And are you offering to consult on the EVP, that's Employee Value Proposition? It's a bit of a hiding to nothing if you promise to deliver on hires for a client who pays below market rate, has a high attrition rate and um, you know a reputation for bullying staff or long hours or whatever it might be so some consultancy can be a useful addition so that you can run an effective attraction campaign because you will be responsible for bringing all the candidates into the top of that funnel and someone once put it very neatly to me said if i if i'm a, a contingent recruiter and i get 30 job orders i'm really thrilled if i fill 15 17 19 of those if I'm in the RPO or Statement of Works game and I get 30 job orders, I feel 29, i failed. So you really are making a commitment to deliver because the payment uh, and the payment reflects that, That doesn't exist in the same way with spot Business. So I've listed here some of the things that you may or may, may not include in your product, in inverted commerce And... It's not that you can't reshape a deal for a particular client where it works, but I've found in approaching this conversation that most clients want to see a product as a starting point. They want to be able to imagine that. And then of course, those people who are interested will want that, but in a different size and perhaps in a different color. They'll want everything tweaked and therefore a sense of, you know, a close eye for detail is critical. So be clear about what your initial offering is and what's flexible within it but also be very clear about what's required from the client so for example when the client actually specify what the criteria are for hires can it say if someone meets these criteria we will hire them because the more that you can define the end product if you will the, the ideal candidate the more you can agree a process and the more of that process you can handle, which is a very desirable outcome for you, because frankly, your commitment to fulfilling is often higher than many of the line managers of the client. Now, lots of people who I speak to think they do this. But actually, what they're doing is sending a CV to a client and waiting for the client to decide whether to interview them or not. In other words, they are only really owning the very, very first stage attraction and preliminary screening. When I negotiated a contract with Boots, which was to staff up all their dental surgeries in all their stores, I, I actually had hiring decision and onboarded those candidates, including their um, Hep B injections and so forth. So that was because the, the business unit didn't exist. It was driven very much by a need to staff up those units as the shop floor space was was dedicated and, and furnished and, and went live. And so the the entire hiring process, which was carefully agreed and specified, was actually down to me and my company. Yeah. So how much of the process will the client let you conduct? In my view, the more the better. Also, it's really difficult to make one of these agreements work if, say, an HRD has just decided to go with it and there hasn't been good stakeholder communication. And that will be a shared responsibility. But you need to know that there is buy-in and that the processes are clear and applied and that your client will support it. So, for example, if they continue to receive speculative applications, and they will as soon as the rest of the recruitment market realises you've got an exclusive deal then you need to have confidence that they are going to reject those or refer them to you as their um, main supplier. So coming to you and committing to this kind of agreement is a better deal for the client. It means that you can invest long term in the attraction strategy because you've got a commitment to a certain number of hires. It means that you can put more resource dedicated on this and that you can support their line managers better, for example, by training them uh, in effective interviewing, and reducing management time as you take on more of the process. It means that you can, if you choose, effectively fund them a talent pool at the end of the project. But, you know, from a client's point of view, it means that they've got visibility, they know what it's going to cost, it's a budgetable amount, and ideally, they've got consolidated invoices coming in uh, once a month. Now, don't underestimate the complexity of decision-making. This is a quite an old graph, actually, but it shows you how many people are actually involved in a decision-making, purchasing unit in the middle column there. So you can see that the, the, the bigger the business um, by headcount, the more people that actually jointly make the decision. And if you look at the right-hand column, you can see typically how many contacts salespeople make. So you can see that they are way under-influencing, despite their best efforts. Very often, then they're, they're failing to understand the decision-making process. So you need to cover off all the bases. You also need to understand that they will have different motivations. These are quite commonly used terms. But, you know, I know that the, the default position is for most recruits to say, now, I only want to speak to the line manager. They're the ones that matter. But actually, if you're going to catch a much bigger fish, a whale even... Then you cannot bypass finance, procurement, HR. You are going to have to satisfy them all, as well as your line managers, that you can do the job, that you can do it to, for example, the right standards, that you can do it, uh, you can deliver the right guarantees. So the bigger the decision, the more elaborate the client's buying cycle becomes, and more people in the decision making unit. And remember, all stakeholders, even shareholders, can absolutely come down like a ton of bricks on a by a client who makes the wrong buying decision and gets let down. So if you think about say Waitrose and Marks and Spencers, um, both of whom have used the to do their delivery, if those deliveries fail that's terrible, terrible reflection on the person at Waitrose and Marks and Spencers who took the decision to partner with the And as I said earlier by the time your client comes around to a tender process I would suggest to you that they are already halfway around that cycle. Uh, watch out for scope creep. You know, we like to please in recruitment. And very often, once you've said, yeah, I will deliver the end result to a client, you find that you are also doing, oh, diversity and inclusivity training. Uh, you are producing MI that you didn't know you'd have to. You're suddenly expected to put somebody on site. And because we like to please, very often these things sort of creep under the wire first time, even though they weren't priced in, and then they become the norm. So define everything is my advice. If you are going to advise on or report on something, then say who's doing it, how often, by when, you know, to what level of detail um, and price it in. When you come to work through a contract, you will need a formal change mechanism uh, that affects both sides. And if you do decide to waive your rights under the contract write it down so if you look at the red line on here it's the uh, investment of time and resources that a recruiter puts in to winning a bigger contracted piece of business so lots of activity in sales and then a big peak when it's implementation time and then obviously ongoing account management ending in hopefully a tidy exit the blue line on that diagram is intended to show you what, what happens to the revenues. In other words, you probably won't see any, anything much at the beginning, although I have worked with a client recently to secure a big upfront payment um, to allow him to do it. But you need to consider these other factors. So getting a detailed service level agreement, make sure your insurers are happy to insure you for the risk that you carry when you make a commitment like this, and make sure that your payment terms are really clear. Compliance becomes critical, particularly if you are managing second tier suppliers and data collection is a really hard thing to fix if it wasn't specified correctly at the beginning. So you cannot go back, for example, and collect diversity data on applicants after they've been exited out of the process. You'll find them very unwilling to um, fill out those details. Okay, so I hope that's been a useful introduction to the thing. You can see that there's a lot to think about And for that reason, I've worked in collaboration with the REC to develop three services to support this. The first, um, which I I recommend, is bespoke business mentoring. So that's me working on a regular basis to actually help you implement, document, design uh, and sell that process. And obviously the the amount of input will vary. There's two training courses which I can deliver in-house to your team. One focuses on the strategic sell, the actual selling phase of it, and the other focuses on managing bids and tenders, which obviously, particularly if you're in the public sector, you probably will have to go through that process. Those are both one-day in-house courses which we can deliver. And that brings me to the end of my slides. So thank you for listening. I'm really happy to take questions. Um, Kevin, I'm handing back to you.
1: Yeah, um, we've got a couple of questions. And the first one is, how do you identify an RPO opportunity? Right.
2: So earlier on, I alluded to some of the factors that snatch that business away from people when they think they've got a nice, comfortable repeat business arrangement. So any change of business strategy, planned change of business strategy, or plan growth into new markets. Those two are things that again you need to be involved at the highest level of conversations you can, and following what goes on in your industry. So if you specialize in oh I don't know uh, specialize in retail recruitment or food manufacturing or something like that, make sure you do read the same trade magazines mm-hmm. and websites as your as your clients do. Because very often that will help to to create credibility around the strategic decision. Um, So that's one, one, if you like, alarm bell. A change of personnel at the very top, that's always an alarm bell. People do want to review things. And if you know that your client business is experiencing challenges, they're also likely to want to do a review of recruitment. This can provide a a win-win. It can be much more cost-effective for the client and at the same time actually more profitable you as a business because you're going to to end up with, uh, how can I put it, if your contracts to the 30 hires, that's 30 birds in the hand. Now, most of the recruitment businesses I know, and they are among some of the best performers, if they're really honest, they only fill about one in four of the jobs that they work if they are purely contingent. If you can fill one in one of the jobs that you work, you become a much more efficient business, hence it's more profitable. So I would look for all of those signs. And I would just make sure that I'm having conversations about what's going on in the market and how your client is responding to it as much as I can and at the most senior levels.
1: The questions are coming thick and fast. So how many staff did you have in your business when you started selling RPOs to clients? Right, okay. So
2: if I go way back to when I was working at listed companies, let me just think. I obviously did the selling um, what I did have in those businesses was a small team of trained assessors and a very small team that could do a, sort of, um, you know, a telephone, like a, effectively a sort of call centre. I had to grow it massively at the point when those contracts became really real. Now, you, are, you should always discuss an implementation period for a big contract, but those were huge contracts. When I um, worked at Liquid Personnel and I set up a statement of work business, I didn't have anyone focused on that at all. All my staff were focused on placing contract social workers through, my, through other master service providers into local authorities. And so to deliver this new method, I actually had to, um, I did I, I did in fact reassign a couple of staff and then hired some other people to fulfill it it's a different sort of hire as most people i think will recognize that you're it's more like an account management hire than a 360
1: group to hire um next question i've got is uh, our intro proposal to new clients currently includes company history info on similar client groups we work with our specialist candidate pipeline recruitment options available to them a bit in our processes costs. Is there anything else that we should include, which is important to include?
2: You need to get, when you write a proposal, remember it is not just going to the person who briefed you. They are going to, they've asked for that proposal so they can copy it and send it round to their colleagues in the decision-making unit. And probably some other stakeholders as well. So you need to show in in that proposal that you have, fully understood the context in which your client is operating. In other words, what is the business imperative that makes recruitment imperative? So it's well worth saying in your proposal, look, this is based on information given to me by X and Y. But, you know, if if anybody thinks it's wrong, then for heaven's sake, let us know. It's well worth then describing the context that has led to the need and what you see as the the challenges and attractions of the employer. So. Mm -hmm. If your stakeholder reads the context, it reinforces why they've got to do something about it. If they read the um, challenges and attractions of of them themselves as an employer, they realise that it's not easy and that you have considered all sorts of factors in doing your calculations. And then the other thing I definitely make sure you include is make sure that this is a visual presentation. Mm. Flowcharts are absolutely critical to show the processes you want. We know if you try and write down how to recruit, how many pages would that book run through? (laughs) So use flowcharts to help aid understanding. Uh,
1: Would the staff working on the RPO work exclusively with that client or would they be working with multiple clients? Okay, entirely depends on the scale of your RPO, doesn't it? Mm.
2: Um, So I've uh, had experience of both where we've had a more flexible account, let's call them an account management team, who were people who perhaps weren't very turned on by the business development side of recruitment, but very, nevertheless, good deliverance. And they could switch and effectively, they worked for two or three clients consistently, had enough, enough knowledge. Of course, remember that you will need scalability because I don't know very many clients who actually managed to carefully schedule all their requirements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, it tends to come in a lumpy way And that means that whoever is managing that team needs to reassign people very
1: rapidly. I think that's the end of the questions I've got via chat. Thank you very much for that. Very informative, very educational, and I'm a recruiter, so (laughs) that's quite a If you require any further information uh, regarding uh, Alison's webinar this morning, if you contact the REC, that would be brilliant. Okay,
2: thank
0: you.
1: Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about Recruitment Leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn, where you can follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.